0: If you would, please take out your Bible and turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Ezra while I get myself situated here. <clears throat> By way of brief apology, I am slowly weaning myself off of my ESV translation with 10 years of notes, so you're going to have to suffer through potentially reading in a different translation than me for a, a little bit longer, so I'm going to use the ESV because of my annotations in here, which I'm a little concerned to be without. So uh, thank you in advance for that. Uh, The sermon outline is in the bulletin, and if you'd like, you can follow along. Introduction, the realist, the idealist, and the fourth point, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And for those of you note-takers, as I am In my notes, I have one bullet point before introduction called context. So save that space for a moment if you'd like, while I give you just a little bit of a running start into what our study is about this morning. So for context, Ezra, which I've only mentioned this once, but Ezra divides neatly into two parts. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 are about the rebuilding of God's temple, and that's what we've been finding ourselves studying for these past several sermons. And starting in chapter 7, Ezra is about the rebuilding of God's people. So we're coming to the end of the rebuilding of the temple, and we're nearing the rebuilding of God's people. But the background even further of God's people, we are talking about God's people in exile. And this is after the Davidic kingdom was split into two, and the Lord sent them into exile, because they were conquered by the Babylonians and inherited by the Persians when the Persians conquered the Babylonians. They're slaves of slaves in a way. And the Lord threatened exile to them proactively and graciously in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 25 through 28, where he says, if you go after false gods, if I will scatter you. He gave them a fair warning. And in 2 Kings... Especially, there was many kings, but especially the Lord's anger was kindled against Manasseh. Manasseh the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'd reviewed some of those terrible things that he did. The worst of all, perhaps, being that he worshipped the host of heaven, which is the demonic angels, rather than the creator. Manasseh worshipped the creature rather than the creator. When we sing, all creatures of our God and king... All creatures owe to God praise. May never a creature worship another creature. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against the Israelites. And in 2 Kings 24 and 25, we read about how they were sent into exile. They were sent to Babylon. Daniel recounts the stories of the faithful in exile. Psalm 137, I said, it gives us a sense of the experience or the feelings of it. How can I sing the Lord's song here in Babylon? We recognize how they felt. And there was even instructions given to them. If you go into exile, it says in Jeremiah 29, build houses, plant gardens, take wives, have sons and daughters, have families. They were given instruction. And in 1 Kings 8, they were further given instructions at the dedication of the temple of Solomon. 1 Kings 8, 46 through 50. It says, if you go into exile because you sin against the Lord, and it says, because there's none who do not sin against the Lord. So when you go into exile, repent and pray toward the land. And you may think of Daniel chapter 6, the famous story, Daniel in the lion's den. Why was he sent to the lion's den? Because he was caught in the window praying, facing Jerusalem in obedience to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you are in exile, pray towards the land that your Lord may deliver you back there. And so that is how the Israelites get into exile. Now, we're reading about them at the end of exile. They have been returned to Jerusalem by the decree of Cyrus. And the themes of Ezra so far, Ezra 1.1, our introduction. We talked about the inspiration of the Bible. The word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord that we're reading. And we learned about the interpretation. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah will be fulfilled. We learned about the interpretation of scripture. And we learned about the influence God has over kings. Because it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And then in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Where the vessels of silver and gold are being returned. Returned we said there's a picture of God's people being prepared to enter into his presence in worship. The Lord prepared his people to be brought back into worship. In Ezra chapter 3, where they finally build the foundation of the altar at, by the way, the Festival of Booths, which was read earlier, we read that they saw the temple and they sent up, Praises and shouts of joy, but those who remembered the temple in its former days sent up crying and weeping. And Ezra chapter 3 talked about our unity in Christ in this age and the age to come. And in this age, we know that the Christian experience is one which is sounds of joy mixed with weeping. Our pastoral prayer earlier shared many of the cares and needs that we have of this world that we won't have someday. And so it's good for us to recognize that that's our experience. Ezra chapter 4, they were bullied into stopping the progress on the building of the temple. And our theme there was living in God's two kingdoms. Living in God's two kingdoms. And why living in God's two kingdoms? Why not a kingdom of God only? And why is it not a kingdom of God and a kingdom of man? But God's two kingdoms? Well, because before exile, the Israelites, under the Davidic kingdom, were sovereign. They were geopolitical and spiritual. There was kings, laws, sovereign rule, land, autonomy. They ruled themselves. They worshipped and they governed. But they've been sent out of exile. They no longer are autonomous or ruled themselves. So now, here, finally in Ezra, we see God's people as primarily religious and spiritual. So the church slowly emerges in the Old Testament and especially becomes clearer in post-exilic history. And I mentioned to you before that in the Old Testament, you might think that the Garden of Eden before the fall and the Davidic kingdom and the time of Solomon especially may be figures and types especially of the future state someday on the new earth. It says of Solomon that he had peace all around and no enemies, right? That is not our experience today. That must point us to something else. But I say that the Israelites in exile especially point us to us in our day because they are troubled people, they're battered on every side, they're under foreign rule, and their obligation is especially to worship. They are a spiritual people. By the grace and mercy of God, he shows us us in the Old Testament. And will he show us Christ? Indeed, he will. So what is the theme for Ezra, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? The theme is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And now here we are at the introduction. I'm going to read our passage and make a few comments. Ezra 5, 1 and 2 says this, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. This is our passage for this morning. So what's happening here? What does it mean now? Now is when? Now is 15 years later. What did we last read? Verse 24 of the last chapter says the work on the house of God stopped. Why did it stop? Because they were sent a cease and desist letter from the king in Persia. You better stop Because I'm afraid you're trying to take power from my kingdom. You people beyond the river, way out there on the frontier and edge of my kingdom, I'm hearing stirrings that you're doing something I don't like. Stop building that temple lest you might try to pillage my goods. And so they were afraid and they stopped. That is what is meant in the word now. Now, 15 years later, after all that time, having been returned to exile now, probably as many as 17, 18, or 19 years. Now. Now the Lord sends prophets. What did they have? They had an altar and a tabernacle probably, but no temple. So the Lord sends two prophets. This, by the way, has been about 50 years since there was a prophet active in Israel. Prior to this, the very last of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry was 50 years. Ezekiel, Daniel, and Obadiah make up the prophets to Israel during the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi make up the prophets after exile. And that's why we read right here, after exile, Haggai and Zechariah are sent. And the Lord sends two prophets. See the love that he has for his people that he sends two. Matthew Henry says two good ministers. What a grace it is. These people who were so cowardice, they didn't fear the Lord. They feared a cease and desist letter. They stopped gathering. They stopped the work on the temple. And yet the Lord loves them and sends two ministers. It says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one, right? A cord of many strands is not easily broken. And while the work of a minister to God's people may at times be a singular work, we see an example in, of all places, Ezra of a reflection of our desire even for plurality of eldership. The Lord sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and not just two prophets, two very, very different prophets. Haggai is older, maybe in his 70s. We know this because in Haggai 2, he references himself as one of the people who had seen the temple in its former glory. So we know he's been around for a long time. Haggai is older. Zechariah On the other hand, he's actually more like the grandson of Edo. Sometimes scripture will say son of to dictate the lineage that you came from. So Edo is most likely his grandfather. Zechariah, it's almost as if Haggai and Edo are of the same generation. Zechariah would be as a grandchild age to Zechariah. So probably Zechariah is young as 30, somewhere in his 30s or 40s is a good faith estimate. And there's such an interesting pairing as you may have picked up, our next point's the realist, that's Haggai, and the idealist is Zechariah. Why? Haggai shoots straight and sugarcoats nothing. He, he is coming out guns a-blazing. Zechariah, on the other hand, so that's why we call him the realist. He's a pragmatist. He's a realist. He says it how it is, as you'll see in a minute. Zechariah, he preaches in strange visions and dreams Um, And he gives a painting of an ideal future. He paints this picture of an ideal future. That's why this morning we can call him the idealist. So now we're going to move into the realist. And if you could, please, let's turn to Haggai. And you can turn to Zechariah, which is a little easier to find at 14 chapters, and go back one. Or you can start at Matthew and keep flipping a little bit to the left. Haggai is two chapters. In my Bible, it lays open to a single page. It's easy to miss. But... Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. That should put you on the right planet there. Haggai is divided into four sermons. So, again, I'm calling out to my fellow note-takers. You may like to record the titles of these four sermons as I get to them, but the entire book of Haggai is broken up into four sermons. Haggai's entire earthly ministry recorded in the Old Testament takes place over about four months and we know in Ezra chapter 5, our key verse, that it's happening prior to the starting of the, the, of the, rebu- the restarting of the temple. So his first sermon, which is verses 1 through 11, is titled, to me at least, Seek Ye First. And what does he say? By the way, we are going to unpack Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai is a series of sermons, as I said, four. Over four months, Zechariah is maybe over 20 or 30 years in a series of dark visions. So we will do no justice to Haggai and Zechariah this morning. Maybe someday I can apologize to them. but we're sticking with Ezra as our main passage. So we're just going to touch on what the exiled Israelites were being taught. So here is Haggai 1 through11. In the second year of Darius the King, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Very similar to our Ezra verse. Now here is what the, the words of the Lord were. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time is not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Hmm. They say it's not time to build. That's why they stopped. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." Haggai pulls no punches. How can you live in homes with paneled walls while the Lord's house stands in ruins? How dare you? Look at all of the things that you sought after. Safety, security, food, and supply. By the way, the wood that they paneled their homes with might in fact be the wood in Ezra 3 by the edict of Cyrus they were bringing in into Jerusalem to build the temple. That sounds a little bit like Judas taking for himself. The Lord sets this wood aside. We're afraid to build the temple. Let us take some of this for ourselves and shore up our personal needs. No wonder they ate but were never satisfied. Drank but never sated. And why? Does the Lord blame that on natural things? He says, I blew it away. The Lord claims to have done these things To the people. How dare you seek first all of those things? Do you not know? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those things would have been added to you. As you know from the familiar passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Which actually follows, I believe, in parallel. I wouldn't be surprised if our Lord had in mind this. Therefore I tell you, starting in Matthew 6.25... or what shall we eat? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's exactly the message that Haggai is giving to the Israelites. You sought first After all of those temporal blessings, what you were going to eat and what you were going to wear, but you neglected the work of the house of the Lord. They neglected the first table of the law, the first four commandments, summarized as what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't do that. And so God, in his mercy, withheld blessing from them. Haggai 2.17 says it. I struck you so you would return to me. He did that out of his mercy to them. They sought temporal blessings while neglecting eternal work. Is there a reminder for us here? Do we have a temple to go build? We should be reminded that although there's not a physical temple that we need to build with our hands, we are the building blocks of the church, and our Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Let us not neglect it. He's a good shepherd. Maybe you think of Psalm 23 when you think of these things about eating and drinking and clothing yourself. With him, we're led by still waters to drink, right? Without the Lord, we drink and are never satisfied, as Haggai says. With him, we worship in spirit and in truth. Without him, it's like we're whitewashed tombs. With him, we eat the bread of life. Without him, we eat but are never satisfied. With him, we have a bountiful harvest of spiritual riches. Without him, we sow much and harvest little. So we ought to take this as a warning to attend the faithful church membership duties before us. Don't neglect the means of grace. Don't neglect worship in private, in your families. Don't dwell in a house with paneled walls like your spiritual temple and be a whitewashed tomb, don't prioritize your physical needs first and above the Lord's work. Don't let your house lie in ruins. Don't let your spiritual house lie in ruins. Be warned as Haggai warns them with stern words. And so the people respond, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they start the rebuilding. And so sometime later, I think about a month and a half later, there's a second sermon recorded, which starts in chapter two. This sermon titled, Be Strong, For I Am With You. I'm not going to read all of it, but Haggai 2, I'll say, uh, if you skip to 3 for just a moment, Who was left among you who saw this house and its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't give up. You started the work barely a month and a half ago, and now Haggai comes along to encourage the people. And how does he encourage them? He tells them, be strong. He tells the governor to be strong. He tells the high priest to be strong. He tells the people to be strong. And why does he tell them to be strong? For I am with you. I am with you. You're building my home. My spirit is in your midst. And further, in this second sermon that Haggai gives, he talks about, uh, starting in verse 6, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and dry land. And I'll fill this house with glory. And he claims something here. He says, The silver is mine. The gold is too. The latter glory of this house shall be greater. Haggai talks now about the church. We know that this temple wasn't greater than its former one. We know that. Yet we know that the temple of Christ, the spiritual temple, the church, which is filled with his glory, is the greater temple. So Haggai points the people forward. He says there is a greater temple coming. Don't neglect your work now. And recall that the vessels of gold and silver that are returned to the temple, remember we talked about this, We are the vessels of silver and gold. 2 Timothy says so. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. So the Lord faithfully brings the silver and gold that belongs to him into his spiritual temple. That ought to be a great encouragement to us. Be strong in the Lord, for he is with us, and we are the silver and gold that belong to him. And so later, uh, sometime later, uh, two months, I believe, Haggai preaches a third sermon. This time, the sermon may be called, Be warned of your former selves. Be careful here. Haggai 2.15 says, Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Remember how bad things were before you started the work on the house of the Lord? Do not forget. Don't forget. Remember how you were just a few months ago. Matthew Henry also kind of unpacks here that the ceremonial laws that are in play here, even in a couple of the earlier verses, talking about the vessels becoming unclean, He's giving a spiritual application to these ceremonial laws. We see that the laws are already being pointed forward to something else, to a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual use to be made of these ceremonial laws. And so the, this helps them to discover both the sin and Christ, their problem and the remedy. So don't forget who you were. Ephesians 4, 22 and twenty through 24. Put off your former self which belongs to your former manner of life and is support through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't forget who you once were. Put off your former self. You spiritual people are coming to do the work of the Lord. That points us forward to the wonderful work that our Lord Jesus Christ has done. He's done all of the work on our behalf. And so we can put off our former selves and trust in Jesus Christ. And so then, later in 18, at the end of his third sermon, he says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing but from this day on, I will bless you. Strange. What does that mean? Habakkuk, uh, chapter 3, 17, and 18, which is, by the way, Habakkuk is prophesying at the very end, right as they go into exile, at the cusp of exile. His passage says something like this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's a parallel. Why could you say that before we go into exile? And how can Haggai say that afterward? Because there's a recognition that the blessing is good when the Lord is the blessing. So even if there is no fig tree in blossom, nor fruit on the vines or produce, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. We look to Jesus as our blessing, not the things that his hand hath provided, which are great blessings, but the true blessing is in Jesus. So Haggai wants to remind them of that. It's a parallel to his first sermon, where you sow much and harvest little. You eat much but are never full. Say, yeah, but your blessing is in the Lord. And so these last two sermons taking place on the same day, as we're going to have two sermons taking place today, later in the same day, the final sermon, which you might call our king is coming. Verses 20 to the end of the book of Haggai. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What does this mean? that the Zerubbabel, his servant, will be made like a signet ring. What this means is that Haggai is pointing forward to the king to come. It says in Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here, Haggai shows us that Zerubbabel, the governor of the people, less than a king, actually typifies our Lord Jesus Christ and the function of his office of kingliness. That the signet would be put on the right hand of Zerubbabel signifies that there is something greater than Zerubbabel to come. And think of the dominion that the father is trusting To our Lord Jesus Christ, who he calls the signet ring. Princes sign their edicts and commissions with their signet rings. That is their final stamp and seal of approval. To, To call our Lord Jesus Christ the signet ring on God's right hand is to say that all power is given to him and derived from him. By the great charter of the gospel, it is signed and ratified, and it is in him that all the promises of God are yea and amen. So... How much of a wonderful blessing is it to the Israelites that Haggai comes and whips them a bit into shape, encourages them to stay the course, reminds them of who their former selves were, and says, and there is a king that's coming. And this king has dominion and power and authority over everything. And while they understood it in signs and dark meanings and shadows, we see and know that this points to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great king on earth. And so Haggai's brief ministry ends with Jesus Christ. Turning the page to Zechariah, where certainly if we're skimming through Haggai in just about a brief moment or two, Zechariah is um, being even more neglected in some ways. Zechariah, 14 chapters taking place over, I think, about 20 or so years is a series of strange visions and dreams organized Under oracles, visions, symbolic actions, instructions, and burdens. Zechariah's kinship might be the second parts of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. Zechariah is apocalyptic. And here's what John Trapp has to say Haggai lays down the mind of God to the people more plainly in direct and downright terms. Zechariah flies a higher pitch abounding with types and visions, and is therefore worthily reckoned among the obtrusest and profoundest penmen of Holy Scripture. He's one of the hardest to understand. And he says, we pass from dark prophecies, like the signet ring being put on Zerubbabel. That's a little confusing. He says, we pass from dark prophecies to that which is more dark. And with Moses, we are entering into the cloud and thick Darkness, when we try to understand Zechariah. Hope, here one deep calleth unto another. And I love what he says here. Being now in a labyrinth, we hope to get out by Christ's golden clue. Concerning whose passion, resurrection, and glory he speaketh more like an evangelist than a prophet. And may therefore be rightly styled the evangelical prophet. Sometimes Zechariah is called the Old Testament gospel in the way that it prefigures Christ. So we go through such a strange book as this, as if it's a labyrinth, but we have a golden clue. And John Trapp says that golden clue is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. So imagine Haggai beating you up because you're living in a paneled house, neglecting the work of the Lord, and he's I don't know if he's curmudgeonly or not, but he's the older gentleman who does seem to be bringing a little bit of heat in his message. And now along comes the young Zechariah speaking in these strange and dark and clouded visions. How confusing it must have been in some ways for the people and how great it is for us on the other side to be able to look back and know the meanings of these things. Yet by faith, they could have found their Messiah even in these words. So Zechariah, we won't won't go through linearly, but we will just make a few comments. The first little section under the idealist is about the passion, the passion of our Lord. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why am I going to rejoice greatly? We're, we're in ru- the Lord's house is in ruins We left Babylon, we're here, we're insecure, we're oppressed on every side. How, Zechariah, can you tell us to rejoice greatly? Because, he says, behold, your king is coming to you. The king with the signet ring is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Some of us know this is Palm Sunday. This points to that final week of Christ's earthly ministry in Zechariah as he is prophesying to the Israelites out of exile. This is a great encouragement to them to be able to say, our king is coming, and he's humble, and he's like a servant. Oh, this gives me the encouragement I need to continue the work of the Lord. Zechariah 3.9 says, For behold... On the stone that I have set before Joshua, who is the high priest, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I'll remove the sins of this land in a single day. What day is that? That's Good Friday when our Lord says, it is finished. No longer... The bull, the blood of bulls and goats. No. It is the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which Zechariah talks about in Zechariah 13.1. On that day. Which day? The day where all of the sins of the people will be removed. There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Blood and water flow on that day. That is the day of our Lord's sacrifice, the precious blood of Jesus. Somehow by his blood, our robes get washed white as snow. Zechariah is pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's building the temple. It is him. And does Zechariah talk about the resurrection? I think the resurrection might be one of the more mysterious parts of Christ's life to see in the Old Testament, but I'll show you in one area. In Zechariah 12.10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And in Zechariah 13.7 the shepherd is commanded to be struck. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. God commands that Christ is struck. But in Zechariah 14:9 it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. How can that be? How can it be that he who was pierced and who was struck who we wept bitterly for who died how can he be the king over all of the earth Christ explains it in his own words in John chapter 2 In John 2:13 the passover of the jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen. The temple, by the way, that we're reading about them building right now. They were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.'" Certainly there's zeal for the house when Haggai instructs the people to have their priorities in order. So the Jews asked him, "'What sign do you show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" The Jews then said, "'It has taken 46 years to build this temple, "'and will you raise it up in three days?' maybe even more than 46 years, if you count all the starts and stops in Ezra and all of the renovations that Herod does on it. So they say, how are you going to raise this temple back up that took 46 years if it's destroyed in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. So that's why in Zechariah we can read about he who was pierced, he who was struck, that was mourned bitterly over, yet he is the king over all the earth because he was crucified, dead, and buried, but didn't remain in the grave. He conquered death, and by conquering death, he took away its sting. And on the third day, he rose again. And the Jews, even at that time, were seeing something there. Something is dark and mysterious in this cloud of strange visions. But we trust that this king, who you say we will weep for, will also be our king forever. And we, on the other side of it, can look and see the resurrection. It is he. It is he who said, it is finished. And he rose himself on that third day. It's Christ that Zechariah speaks of. It is he who rose again and ascended to heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. The right hand, which is where you would place the signet ring of the king. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him because he is our king. And so finally, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And I'll just say that what came to mind for me was that Haggai in some ways kind of makes me feel strength for today because he admonishes and encourages and prods them forward. And Zechariah especially makes me think about the bright hope for tomorrow. That's why I utilize that as the theme, is the one-two punch, I'll say, of Haggai and Zechariah. Not that those ideas are mutually exclusive to each of their ministries, but I think they come out as evident. So in where is the strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? At the very beginning of Zechariah in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, it says... I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. This man is riding a red horse. This is Jesus Christ on his earthly ministry atop a red horse. John Trapp says the wild bull can't abide any red color. Therefore, the hunter does what? The hunter stands in front of a tree with a red garment. And when the bull sees the red, he runs at him as hard as he can. And he drives his horn straight at the red. But the hunter steps aside. And what happens? The bull's horns stick fast in the tree. Just like when David stepped aside and Saul's spear stuck into the wall. Such a hunter is Christ. He lifted up on the tree of his cross his garment dipped and died in his own blood. Therefore, the devil and his angels, like the bulls of Bashan, ran at him with all their force. But he, delivering himself as a mighty conqueror, their horns stick fast as if to the cross, as the ram's horns were stuck in the briar. The story of Abraham and Isaac. This vision of red is one of our our Lord as a hunter. And where we see our humble servant in his humility being crucified on the cross is his greatest moment of victory. Because what the demons thought they were going to do was have our Lord crucified, dead and buried, and he was going to remain in the grave. But actually what happens is something far greater than that. Why? Because he is risen. He is risen. He is risen from the dead. And there's a great victory in that. So how does the Lord get depicted in his glory? Revelation 19, 11 through 16 say, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. A white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the depiction of our humble servant, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried on the third day rose again. This is our Lord, great and mighty and awesome. Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Indeed, he is. Turn, if you will, back just in a couple of closing comments, if you've been following along. Let's go back to Ezra for just a moment. Ezra chapter 5 our passage says now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them Do you see the threefold office of Jesus in this passage? That Haggai and Zechariah as prophets go to Zerubbabel, who is the governor, which is a type of king, and to Joshua, who is the high priest? Do we see that the prophet, priest, and king, the three anointed positions in the economy of the Israelites are figured here? And we have something so much better. Hebrews 1.1 says what? Long ago... In many ways, our Lord prophesied to us by Haggai and Zechariah, by the prophets, it says. But in these days, he preaches to us by his son, Jesus Christ. So we have a greater prophet than Haggai and Zechariah. And Joshua, the high priest, who in Zechariah gets talked about as having a name above all names and his name written on a white stone this high priest, there's a better priest, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapters 4 through 8 are all about this. We do not have a high priest who first has to make atonement for his own sins. Christ does not enter into the Holy of Holies after having sacrificed a bull or a goat for himself. No, he is the perfect priest who needs no intermediary between himself and the Father And yet he goes in there and offers the sacrifice, which is himself. Joshua here, Jeshua, points us to Jesus Christ and our king. Oh, our king in Psalm 2. The Lord says that the nations are his inheritance, and he will break them with a rod of iron. And he is coming someday on the clouds to rule and set everything right. So our king is someone much greater than Zerubbabel. We see the threefold office of our Lord Jesus Christ, even in this brief passage. So we need to look to Jesus, who is our strength for today, our courage and our hope. See, we have a sure object of our faith. Our faith is in Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, took to himself our sinful nature, was crucified, dead, and buried. He proclaimed victory to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. That is what the Christian's faith is in. And with the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, in view, we're called to love. Let us love. And how, in this passage, especially we're called to love. Don't live in a house with paneled walls while the Lord's temple stands in ruins. Attend to the means of grace. Participate in the communion of saints. Take courage from each other. Know that right now, In our spiritual kingdom, especially we are called to worship, we are exiles, we are aliens and sojourners at this time looking forward to our heavenly kingdom. And so love one another, love our Lord Jesus Christ, and have hope. And what is our hope? Our hope that is our king will return, and when he returns, he's returning in full glory on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and with eyes of fire. To set everything right, and He will reign on earth as He does in heaven. In that day, we will see the glory of the resurrected Christ in full display. And until then, what can we say but, "Maranatha, Lord, come soon"? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Your Son Jesus, and in the power of Your Spirit, we thank You, Lord, because You are good. You're so good and gracious to us, Lord, that You give us. Even now, many thousands of years later, Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah to read and understand. And we can see, Lord, that you've been pointing us to you since the beginning. May me, Lord, have our faith grown as we hear your word preached and read, and as we sing such wonderful public theology as our hymns, and as we see, Lord, with our own eyes this evening even, your body broken, and your blood spilled for us, Lord. And until that day, equip us by your spirit for all endurance and patience, Lord, as this world and these days are hard and we are weary. But we know, Lord, that your burden is light. May we be reminded of that every day. And may you come soon, Lord, and reign supreme. And may we see you face to face. And yet until then, Lord, may we take courage in your words. May we be admonished encouraged and strengthened by the truth of your beautiful gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you conquered death on the cross and proclaimed the victory over death in the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that we can know such beautiful truths. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.